A-B-A Madrid. West Canyon High Uh, welcome to today's episode of ABA Wizard. We have Brandon Perez with us to discuss his recent publication in the Journal of Applied Behavior Analysis titled An Extension of Commonly Used Toilet Training Procedures to Children with Autism Spectrum Disorder. Uh, I know we're all excited to learn more about toilet training procedures, uh, but first we I would like to introduce our guest. So Brandon is a fifth year doctoral student in behavior analysis at the University of Florida studying under the advisement of Dr. Timothy Vollmer. Uh, he received his bachelor's degree from the University of Florida in 2013, uh, worked for a few years at a local clinic as a BCABA, uh, and then he began his doctoral program in 2016. And so on his track to getting his doctoral degree, he has received his master's degree, and he became a BCBA in 2019. Uh, so his primary research interests are toilet training, functional analysis, and treatment of problem behavior for individuals with intellectual and developmental disabilities. So Brandon, thank you so much for being on our show today. Of course. Thank you so much for having me. Yeah, I'm, I'm excited. I think every behavior analyst is, is excited to learn more about toilet training. That seems to come up quite, quite a bit in our field. <laughs> Absolutely. Yeah, definitely with, uh, with, with behavior analysts working in clinic settings. Yeah, it's definitely a, a kind of a hot topic. Oh, yeah. Uh, and so I'm just curious, from your end, why toilet training? What kind of brought on this study? <laughs> uh, yeah, that's a, that's a good question. Um, so it actually started uh, before I was in the PhD program. So um, back in 2016, um, Dr. Vollmer was the editor of Java. And so he kind of would, um, you know, typically he would, you know, read all of the all of the articles coming through Java. And there was one study that was published in 2016 um, by Greer et al. Um, and so they were looking at toilet training, typically developing kids. So they had um, 20 subjects in their study, and 19 of them were typically developing. One of them was was a child with autism. And so their question was kind of a component analysis, looking at um, kind of three different procedures that are typically used for toilet training, typically developing kids. Um, and so they were looking at the use of uh, putting children in underwear, uh, differential reinforcement, and then a, a sit schedule. And so they were kind of curious of those three components, which uh, component was kind of the most important when it comes to toilet training. And they found in their study uh, that underwear in isolation was the most kind of effective and essential component when it comes to toilet training. Um, and so kind of uh, on the flip side with uh, with their study as well, they looked at all three of those components together in one treatment package. So they used all three components together. And uh, we it kind of got us thinking, um, it, it kind of Dr. Vollmer, it was kind of his idea. Um, basically, he was kind of like, you know, with toilet training for kids with intellectual and developmental disabilities and specifically with autism, so much of the research that we've done uh, or that, that has been done already has looked at using kind of really intensive procedures. So there's a lot of um, kind of aversive components, the really intensive procedures. Um, and so there's really not a lot out there on kind of looking at toilet training kids with autism similar to typically developing kids. And so that was kind of where the study was born. It was, does this treatment package that was evaluated with typically developing kids, does it even work um, with kids with ASD? Um, so that's kind of where where it started, and so kind of our first our first step was looking at just that treatment package that they evaluated in Greer et al., um, replicating it with kids with ASD, and then seeing if you know kind of the next step would be to kind of then parse it out and look at those those components. But 
it was really interesting because I kind of thought, you know, given what we know about toilet training because of these intensive procedures, I kind of went into the study thinking it was it wasn't going to work. You know, I kind of thought, well, you know, we already have a lot a lot to show that, um, you know, we need these intensive procedures or that these intensive procedures are being done. So I was kind of uh, when I started the study, I kind of thought, you know, we were going to need to add in some more some more components. And um, yeah, I, we can uh, talk about the, the method and results later. But uh, that kind of wasn't really the case. It kind of we kind of showed that, uh, you know, the kids with ASD do kind of respond similar to typically developing kids in, in a lot of situations. And you can keep things simple. You don't need to make things, you know, incredibly complex with, you know, 20 different components involved in the in the treatment exactly. package. So exactly. That's that's really cool. And yeah, let's let's take a step back here and kind of look how did you go about doing this study? It, it looks like it's a um, the uh, experimental design is a multiple baseline across participants. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so starting with the baseline, like describe the procedures here. What were you doing? Absolutely. So yeah, the baseline is kind of a um, kind of like a, a just getting the kids started. So kind of just with like a, a typical routine and adding in some reinforcement. That was kind of the, uh, the idea behind the baseline. And this, and again, this was all taken from the Greer et al. studies. So this was a completely a systematic replication of their procedure. So we didn't, okay. we didn't come up with any of this. Um, yeah. But yeah, so the baseline basically was um, the participants remained in pull-ups or diapers. So whatever they were kind of already in. Um, so we didn't change uh, the undergarment, but it was so pull-ups or diapers, um, they were taken to the bathroom on a 90 minute schedule. So every hour and a half, we would take them on a scheduled trip to the bathroom where we would prompt them to say potty or whatever, you know, whatever their communication modality was. So if they were vocal, we would prompt them to say potty vocally. Uh, but we did have a couple a couple participants who were um, who either used uh, picture exchange or some sort of speech generating device. So we would just prompt them to say potty on that device. Oh, yeah. Um, and was this and in then, a was this in a clinic or was this? Yeah, in, yeah, in it was actually home. in a. It was in a local clinic, yeah. Um, so it was in a, a clinic that our, our lab does uh, some research with here in here in Gainesville. And so ninety minutes for baseline. Are they uh, were they there at the clinic for much longer than ninety minutes? Were they there? Was this like a six hour a day kind of a thing? Yeah. So for our for our kids, uh, it was a kind of a day treatment center type thing. So they um, it was kind of an early intervention center and. Yeah, the kids range in in time. I would say the least amount of time that they were there was between three and five hours. Um, so I think our our the the participant who was there the least was there um, between three and five hours, kind of uh, rotating throughout the week. Um, so it was a five day a week thing, that Monday through Friday. Um, oh, yeah. And then we did have some participants who were there for up to eight hours a day um, oh, cool. throughout the week as well. So we kind of had a range. Yeah, that makes sense. Yeah, and. Uh... Did they? Did you take any data on um, independent eliminations prior to baseline? Did any of them have any, you know, skill or ability um, for the, you know, toileting before even baseline? Yeah, that's a good question. So we um, we basically our inclusion criteria was um, pretty loose, uh, but it was basically that. They weren't currently toilet trained, um, so all of them in in the study had started. You know, at the start of our study, were already in pull ups or diapers, so they hadn't. Um, they weren't in underwear yet. They were untoilet trained, um, and then we also kind of got tried to get an idea of previous toilet training history, um, just to try to see if they're. Um, and most of the subjects in our study had not been toilet trained previously, or they had attempted and failed. Uh, you know, by by the parents. Yes. Um, so that was, yeah, that was kind of at, at the start of our study. We They reached out to us saying, this child is ready to be toilet trained. Um, 
are are you willing to take them as a participant in your study? Very cool. Yeah. Very neat. Um, and so did we uh, did we discuss all aspects of the baseline phase there, or was there more to it than that? Uh, there's a couple more things here. So um, in addition to the 90-minute um, sit schedule, um, there were we would do dry checks every 30 minutes as well. Um, and then if a if an appropriate elimination happens on the toilet, uh, we would provide reinforcers. So kind of another um, layer to the study is at the beginning of every week, we would do um, a preference assessment for leisure items uh, for toys, and then as well as a preference assessment for edible items. And then the items, um, the top two items in each of those assessments would be restricted for toilet training only. Um, and so if they did have an appropriate elimination on the toilet in baseline, they were provided with with uh, with those preferred items. Very cool. So even during baseline, there was some learning potential there. Absolutely. Yep. And, and that, that'll come up in our results too. Yep. Very cool. Uh, and then moving moving on to the uh, the next phase, the general treatment package, what did that look like? Yeah, so the general treatment package um, was uh, kind of taken from that Greer study where they, they evaluated the treatment package for a few of their individuals as well. Um, so that uh, kind of the same um, three major components. So instead of pull-ups or diapers at the start of the child's day at the center, they were changed into underwear. Um, so the kind of one-to-one behavioral therapist uh, would, that was working with them would change them into, into underwear. Um, they would uh, now, instead of 90 minute, a 90 minute sit schedule, uh, they were taken to the bathroom every 30 minutes. Um, so it became a 30 minute sit schedule, um, as well as those 30 minute dry checks. Um, and then uh, this is kind of where the, the differential reinforcement came in. Um, so as in, in baseline, reinforcers were provided for eliminations only. Um, now the, the children would get a preferred item for appropriate eliminations and for remaining dry um, for, during, during those dry checks. Very cool. And, and that's it? Yeah, that's that's it for the general treatment package. Oh my goodness, that is so simple. Yeah. <laughs> okay, hold on. Let me let me see if I got this all. So you went, baseline was 90 minutes, sit a sit schedule. This, you lowered it to 30 minutes and they had to sit for three minutes. Is that right? That's correct, yep. Uh, and you then did dry checks. How often were the dry checks? 30 minutes. So in treatment, they just, the dry checks occurred when they were taken to the bathroom. Wow. And then, and so that's just the only opportunity where they can earn their uh, preferred item was, Mm -hmm. you know, if they were dry, if there was an appropriate elimination. um, And then what other piece am I missing here? I feel like there was something else. Um, So one thing, I guess we haven't really talked about this is the self-initiations. Oh Um, yeah. Yeah. So if um, basically the, the, the contingency for self-initiation. So I mentioned that we would prompt them to say potty or whatever um, at the beginning of every sit trial. Um, so before we would transition them to the bathroom, we would have we would prompt them to say potty. Um, if they independently requested, so unprompted, just at some point in their day, um, you know, most of these children I forgot to mention were just kind of receiving typical early intervention services. So when they were not in the bathroom, they were doing you know typical um, early intervention type work, um, you know matching. Uh, kind of discrete trial, NET type things at, um, in their session rooms. Um, yeah. And so if at any point they uh, independently requested the bathroom, uh, the therapist would immediately take them to the bathroom, give them an opportunity to sit, um, you know, give them lots of praise for self-initiating. And then if they did kind of subsequently have an appropriate elimination, uh, then they would get access to those preferred items. That makes sense. So you don't give the preferred item just for the self-initiation. You Correct. get praise for self-initiation. 
Uh, but you just, you don't want to like create a situation where they're going in to sit on the potty every five minutes. Exactly. Um, and we did, yeah, for, for one of our, one of our participants, we did see that where they just started self-initiating, um, to get to the bathroom, to get access, but he would actually eliminate every single time. Um, so we saw kind of a spike in self-initiations because he realized, uh, kind of that was how, uh, he, he, he kind of learned the contingency pretty quickly, um, that (laughs) those restricted items were only available when he would go to the bathroom. Wow. Smart kid. Mm-hmm. <laughs> that's awesome um very cool and so while you were doing this procedure like this is simple i mean this is something that like you know you could write on a single paged paper and a parent could follow without like any like specific training like this is some some simple stuff what results did you see just with this first treatment um package yeah, absolutely. Um, so we we did. I met, I kind of alluded to this earlier. We actually did have two participants who mastered the procedure in baseline. So we actually wow. didn't even need to to drop the schedule to thirty minutes, um, which is and that that alone was pretty interesting for us because um, if you remember from baseline, they're still in pull ups or diapers. So we'd actually they, these two participants weren't even in underwear and they mastered. You know, they were at one hundred percent for multiple days. Um, you know, of appropriate urinations. Why? Uh, like what, what happened there? Like, just, I, I think it was just kind of a product of the scheduled sits and reinforcement. So I think they contacted reinforcement. Um, it's possible that these, that these two kind of outside of our, uh, and you know, one thing that we didn't necessarily control for was what parents were doing. Um, so if parents yeah. were kind of doing something outside of the clinic, um, you know, we told them not to, you know, we kind of said, wait until we identify an appropriate intervention in the clinic and then we'll train you, um, to do something at home. Um, and so we kind of told them to try to keep things the same, like not, not make many changes, but yeah. you know, we couldn't really control that. So that it's possible sense. something, you know, it's possible these two participants had a previous history with toilet training um, or that, yeah, it was just a product of the schedule and contacting reinforcement. Um, I think that, I think that's kind of ultimately what it was for these two, um, which was pretty interesting though. Cause yeah, again, they were in pull-ups. Uh, and so that's, that kind of go, you know, there's several research articles out there on just kind of how the, the use of underwear is the most essential component. And there's, there's some speculation as to why we don't quite understand um, the, the complete, you know, the mechanism, the behavioral mechanism for why, but yeah. there's some speculation as to why, why that might be in terms of, you know, uh, the wetness becoming aversive. Um, and that's why, you know, when you have an accident and you're wearing underwear, like a naturally occurring punishment procedure. Almost. Exactly. Exactly. Um, and so that, you know, it's, it's interesting because these, these individuals were in pull up still uh, and they, they still mastered, um, the procedure. So we did eventually, you know, once we faded everything and once we went to the next phases, we did put them into underwear. So it's not like we kept them in pull-ups, but, um, still just kind of interesting that we, that we did see two individuals who mastered the procedure in baseline. And their, pro- their progress stayed throughout the rest of the, of the study as well. It did. Yeah. Yep. Very cool. Yeah. Very amazing. Um, and then the, tell me about the results of the, um, of the general treatment package. Yeah, so we had, um, you know, nine subjects uh, who did meet mastery using this. uh, So I I don't know if I mentioned this before, we had 13 total subjects. um, And nine of them did meet mastery in, you you know, using this general treatment package. And the interesting thing was, we kind of, you know, they did, they all met mastery, but we kind of saw this varying length of time that it took. Um, So we had three, three participants who met mastery in less than 10 sessions. So, you know, essentially, you know, kind of up until uh, 10 sessions hit, you know, they had already mastered uh, that 30 minute schedule. um, And so 10 sessions, does that refer to 
not 10 days. You're saying like 10 opportunities to use the toilet. No, I'm sorry. It, it would be, it's 10 days. So okay. 10 days yeah. at the clinic. Yep. Um, and so, yeah, the, the reason we call it sessions is just kind of a little nuanced thing uh, because they're not there on the weekends. Um, it. So it's not calendar days necessarily. It's sessions at the clinic. Okay. Got it. Yeah. Um, so yeah, we had three who met mastery in less than 10 sessions. We had two participants who met mastery between 10 and 20 sessions. Um, and then we had four that, uh, kind of took longer than 20 sessions. So we had, you know, across these nine participants, we kind of had a varying length of time to master that, uh, that treatment package, which, um, was interesting there. You know, it, it kind of shows that, you know, some of the kids might kind of get this really quickly. Others might take some more time, but they still, they still can do it. You know, they still can meet mastery using these less intensive procedures, but then there may be some others that do need some more, some more, um, kind of intensive or, um, adding in some, some other components. Totally. And so by the end of the general treatment session, the general treatment package session, you had 11 of 13, you know, ready to go that were, you know, they had met mastery. You talked that, that there are some that, you know, took longer than others as far as the sessions go. Did that correlate with how long they were at the clinic? You know, because one that's, session for one per- participant wasn't the same for one session for another, right? Yeah, that's a, that's a really good question. That's actually one of, uh, when I went through the review process, that's one thing that one of our reviewers asked as well. Um, and we, you know, I, that is a big possibility. Um, but just kind of looking at some of, you know, um, Looking at looking back at some of the participants, we did have so one of our quick responders, so one of the ones who met mastery in less than ten sessions, was one of our clients who was only there for four hours a day. Um, and then, kind of on the flip side, one of our one of our uh, participants who was there for eight hours a day was actually one of the ones who didn't master um, the treatment package and required an individualized treatment package. Yeah. Um, so just kind of looking at those two extremes, um, it's like, I, I don't think that it was, it was that easy, you know, in terms of, um, number of hours at the center being an indicator of, um, How being a, quick, a quicker responder. Got yeah. It. Okay. Very good answer there. Now, uh, <laughs> did, uh, so for the, let's talk about these other two individuals that, mm-hmm. you know, the, this, this treatment package was not sufficient alone. What did you mm-hmm. do for them? Yeah, so we kind of created our own little, uh, we just call it our individualized treatment package. Um, so what we did first was uh, we looked back at um, at least 10 sessions of, of toilet training data. Um, so on our data sheet, we indicate, you know, every single time that they were either taken to the restroom or had an accident. So we had a bunch of data to look back at. And so we kind of created a scatter plot to try to identify if there were certain times of day um, that were what we kind of called risk times uh, for when eliminations were more likely to occur. Um, And so we did kind of find uh, some risk times for one of those participants. Um, So for Edward in our, um, in our study, uh, we identified that kind of right after lunch, he was a lot more likely to, to have an accident. Um, And so what we did for him was create a denser sit schedule around those times. So I think it was either from 12 to two or 12 to one and one to two or something like that. Um, we uh, essentially just made a denser schedule. So instead of the 30-minute sit schedule in the general treatment package, we dropped it down to 15 to a 15-minute schedule. So every 15 minutes, he was taken to the restroom. Um, and then uh, later on, so that actually w- still wasn't effective for him. So we just reduced the 15 minutes completely across his entire day. Um, so rather than just those risk times, we just made it a 15-minute schedule across his day. Um, 
and that actually still wasn't effective. Uh, so for him, we actually ended up using um, a toddler potty chair as well. Um, and that's what we did with our other subject um, that was that required this individualized treatment package, Audrey. Uh, we've identified for her that she typically had her accidents on the transition to the bathroom. Um, so for her, what we ended up doing was dropping it down to a 15 minute schedule and using the toddler potty chair kind of to eliminate the transitions to the bathroom. Um, so the toddler potty chair was kind of set up right next to her um, in, in her session room, right next to her table that she was typically doing her work. And uh, we just kind of eliminated the transitions to the bathroom. And that was kind of what was needed. And she immediately acquired uh, or started engaging in a lot more appropriate urinations and, and kind of mastered the schedule. We were able to to kind of thin out and fade out the um, the schedule as well as the potty chair um, and had her transitioning back to the, to the actual bathroom. Um, whereas for Edward, uh, it was kind of a different story. So the interesting thing about Edward, we, um, we saw even in the treatment package, we saw an increase in appropriate urinations. So in baseline, he had no appropriate urinations at all. So he was at zero. Yeah. Um, and then once we implemented the treatment package, we saw an increase. It was just highly variable. So yeah. we kind of saw, um, you know, he was intermittently having an appropriate urination on the bath in the bathroom, but would also have have some accidents. And so it was just highly variable. Um, and it was kind of the same pattern across all of these all of these phases. So the treatment package, the individualized treatment package with the risk times, the potty chair, you know, if you just look at kind of his, his data in its entirety, there's really no change from treatment to the end of, you know, essentially what we attempted with him. Um, so, yeah, so, you know, kind of, uh, uh, I, I kind of say this a lot, but, you know, out of, out of the study, we were able to effectively toilet train 12 out of 13, out of the 13 participants. Um, so Edward was the only one that we were, we were unable to toilet train. Um, and then for him, essentially kind of outside of the study, we um, had him go through one of those more intensive pr uh, protocols. So the, the LeBlanc study, um, with uh, kind of the more intensive procedures. We had him go through that, um, and we saw a little bit of success with him, um, but uh, we ended up kind of just kind of resetting with him. So after, even after we attempted the, the LeBlanc protocol, um, he still wasn't consistently having only appropriate urinations. We were still having some accidents. So we ended up pausing for him for a few months and then resuming, and, uh, and then we finally, he is, he is toilet trained today. Oh, um, that's after, amazing. Yeah, Good. after a little a little bit longer, but um, but yeah, just kind of in the context of this study, um, we were unable to to toilet train him. That's that's really cool. That like you know, eleven of thirteen, I think like that right there. That's a very powerful number there to say like the simple intervention is effective, uh, the simple treatment package, um, and you know, twelve of thirteen for by the end of the study, and thirteen for thirteen today. So that's 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 yeah. good. Um, yeah. And I I do want to get your take on this if so they're sitting every 30 minutes um mm -hmm. was there in this study a plan to to fade that somehow a plan to you know what did did you by the end of the study stop prompting a 30 minute sit or mm -hmm. is there an intervention in place to be able to do that yeah so the for the participants who met mastery um we kind of uh they uh, the, the final phase for all of these participants was this extension phase. Um, and essentially that was just schedule and reinforcement thinning. Um, and so that was something that uh, in the Greer study, so that, that's kind of why another reason why this is a systematic replication. They didn't um, really describe their fading process and just in communication with them, they did. They kind of did something very similar to what we did. Yeah. Um, so we, we ended up just kind of describing what we did, even though it wasn't really the, um, 
the purpose of, of the study. Yeah. But yeah, so we, we essentially, um, at the, once a subject mastered the, uh, the 30 minute schedule, we probed the kind of essentially the baseline, um, schedule. So we probed a 90 minute set, um, just to see if we had to fade more slowly. Um, and so for some participants, that jump from 30 to 90 was totally fine. So they didn't, you know, they didn't need to fade more slowly. Um, whereas for some participants, once we increased to that 90, they started to have some more accidents again. And so we faded more slowly up to a 90 minute schedule. Um, so for most of them, we got to a 90 minute schedule and then we, uh, we started fading out reinforcement. So we removed the kind of those separate dry techs, we started providing re uh, reinforcers for eliminations only rather than providing them for dry, being dry as well. Um, the, kind of the next phase was only providing praise, so they no longer received tangible reinforcement. Um, and then the final phase for some participants, we actually probed um, just self-initiations only. So we removed a schedule completely. And we did have some participants who they kind of remained continent. So even with the removal of the schedule, they just started self-initiating more. Um, and then there were some participants, though, that they weren't necessarily self-initiating as much um, at that point. And so when we removed the schedule, we either saw an increase in accidents again, or um, they were just holding it all day. And so we kind of identified that that was really problematic. So yeah. for them, we just kept them on a, um, we increased the schedule again. So rather than a 90 minute schedule, we actually increased it to a two hour schedule, kind of to make it more feasible um, for them to, you know, so that they're still not going to the bathroom as much as they were in the study. Um, so we kind of, for them concluded at a two hour schedule and then we kind of provided some recommendations to the clinical team and to the families about how to kind of increase those independent requests um, so that they could eventually fade out the, the scheduled sits. That makes a lot of sense. Uh, something uh, that I, I wanted to bring up, we haven't talked about yet, is the age of your participants. Mm -hmm. um, because I know, <clears throat> uh, you know, it. my understanding is, you know, there's this, like with kids with autism, you don't want to start too young or like, don't start till they're, till they're four. You know, I think mm -hmm. you do bring that up. I think you bring that up in the, in the article as well. Mm -hmm. Um, but you know, your participants, six of the 13 were younger than four. Yep. And so what was that kind of intentional? Were you going for like, you wanted some younger participants to see how well, you know, you could, uh, use these procedures on younger individuals? Mm -hmm. Yeah, it was pretty intentional. Uh, yeah, I, you know, cause I've, I've read several of those articles, um, and they're pretty old. Some of those, some of those articles that, you know, make recommendations about not th starting toilet training until four, um, you know, it's, th those are those, I think there's a lot more research to, to support that, um, kids, with autism can be toilet trained younger um, than than we previously thought. So yeah, th this was pretty intentional uh, just to to see kind of what would happen um, and see if these kids could still acquire it. And you know, for the majority of them, they did. Um, that's, that's amazing. And two of them were even two years old. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> this wasn't like you were like three years, eleven months, and you're like in your face. They were younger than four. This was like, yep, they yep. Were, These were some young kids, you know. Yeah, it's really cool. Yeah, we, you know, we kind of left it up to, you know, the clinical team and the families. So we kind of said, you know, if, if this child, like if the, if toilet training is a clinical goal for you, then we kind of left it up to them. Um, and we kind of, we kind of let them know, you know, there is some research to show that, you know, younger kids may not, may not respond uh, to, 
uh, to these toilet training interventions, but, you know, we're happy to, to try. So we kind of, we're taking it as kind of like a trial and error type thing. You know, we were happy to try it if this was a clinical goal for them. And then if it didn't work, you know, we, then we had some data to support that. Yeah, maybe, maybe we should wait until they're at least three or at least four. Um, but yeah, for these, and, and interestingly, um, Max was one of our participants who um, was one of the uh, kind of the quicker responders. Um, so he met mastery in less than 10 sessions and he was one of the two-year-olds. Oh my goodness. Yeah. That's fascinating. And, and that's, that's really impressive. So props to you, Brandon, this is a, this is a really <laughs> fascinating article. I think it's, uh, I think it's motivating for a lot of us who, you know, have clients with, with toileting as, as one of their goals. Um, I, I do want to ask for those of us who are, you know, using toilet training, what recommendations can you, can you give us based on the findings of this article? Yeah, absolutely. Um, so yeah, I've, I've, um, you know, become pretty passionate about, about toilet training. I, I never would have thought that, uh, that that was the case. Um, but you know, one thing just, you know, kind of, I mentioned this earlier, you know, what we knew about toilet training before, this study, and, and there, there are a couple others who have done kind of more less intensive um, procedures, but, you know, what we knew about toilet training for kids with ASD prior to this, um, you know, kind of showed that these kids might require more intensive procedures, things like, you know, overcorrection, um, reprimands, um, the, you know, the potty alarm is another kind of component that's often used in toilet training interventions. Yeah. Um, and so I think one kind of takeaway from this study is that, kids with autism might respond to toilet training similar to typically developing kids, similar to their typically developing peers. And so I think this has a lot of implications for practitioners, um, especially with what we know in our ethics code, where, you know, regarding punishment procedures, you know, one of the things that it says in our code is that behavior analysts ensure that steps have been taken to implement reinforcement-based procedures prior to using punishment-based procedures, um, unless, you know, the, the severity of the behavior, the, dangerous of the, the dangerousness of the behavior requires aversive procedures. Um, and so I think just given the, the results of this study, we can t toilet train some kids with ASD without using punishment-based procedures. And so I think that's a big finding for us um, to, to show that, you know, we, you know, as practitioners and researchers, um, you know, if these kids don't require punishment-based procedures, we probably shouldn't use them, right? Yeah. Um, and so I think that that's, that kind of gives, you know, for me in terms of you know, if I am toilet training children, my go-to now is to try this procedure first. And if it doesn't work, then we resort to some of these more intensive procedures. So that's kind of my approach that I've taken. Um, and then, you know, clinicians that I've worked with, that's kind of what I recommend. Um, but I think, yeah, I think that that's kind of a, a big deal for us in, in terms of working in clinic settings where, you know, where toilet training is a, a huge goal for families um, is kind of, you know, that, that the whole, the whole structure of, you know, what procedure am I going to use? Um, because there's so many options out there. And I think that this, this article, um, kind of shows that we may, you know, uh, it's probably in our, in our best interest and in our, in the children's best interest to start with these less intensive procedures first and see if they're effective before, um, resorting to those more intensive procedures. Yes. And less intensive, but also I feel like simpler to do. Absolutely. Like, yep. I, I think this is really cool and, and will definitely impact the way that, that I do toilet training in the future. So thank you. Of course. Um, we do have a, you have a few other authors um, on this study. So we have mm -hmm. uh, Janelle K. Bacotti, Carrie P. Peters, and uh, Timothy R. Vollmer. 
And so I just wanted to give a shout out to them as well for their contributions here with, with your study. It seems like Absolutely. you have a really good team with you. We do. Yeah. I, I could not have done the study without, uh, without the three of them. And, uh, you know, I guess to end this, what additional research do you feel like is needed in this area? Yeah, absolutely. So one thing um, that I didn't mention and that we're kind of uh, pursuing now, uh, you know, we in this study, our primary dependent variable were appropriate urinations. Um, so that was kind of the, the primary target behavior. Um, we did measure bowel movements, self-initiations, um, and bowel movements and self-initiations as well. Um, but they were kind of like a secondary, a secondary um, dependent variable in this study. Yeah. Um, so one thing that we're actually looking at is going back and looking at these 13, these 13 participants in this study and looking at, you know, monitoring their progress in those, those secondary dependent variables to see if this is a procedure that's effective to teach those skills as well. Um, so we're actually kind of doing this uh, kind of secondary analysis type archival analysis type type study to kind of see that and see if this, if this um, procedure is effective for those target behaviors as well. Um, so, so that's ongoing right now. That's something you it guys is. are working on. Very cool. It is, yeah. And another thing that we looked at um, that I, I collected data on is problem behavior. Um, so looking at um, kind of what does this procedure look like in terms of problem behavior? Because, you know, we speculate, you know, this is a less intensive procedure, probably easier for RBTs or parents to implement. Um, but what does it look like in terms of aversiveness for, for the child? Um, and so one thing that we actually are kind of embarking on, too, is comparing this procedure to... Um, some of those other more intensive procedures like the LeBlanc, um, the LeBlanc protocol. So looking at um, comparing these two procedures and seeing, you know, it's, it may be possible that the, you know, this, this the study that we did, you know, it, it's less intensive, um, but it takes longer for some kids. You know, we, we mentioned that there were some participants who took longer than 20 sessions to acquire the skill, which that's kind of, kind of a long time um, yeah. to, to master toilet training, especially if they're still having accidents, you know, frequently. Um, so one thing, you know, we are interested in looking at is, yeah, it might be the case that this is a less intensive procedure, but a procedure like the LeBlanc protocol might work much more quickly. Um, and so it's kind of this give and take kind of, uh, uh, risk analysis to see, you know, yeah, one of these procedures might be less intensive, but one of them might work much more quickly. And then the kid can contact reinforcement more quickly. Um, and then kind of looking at as well, um, you know, looking at problem behavior associated with these procedures um, and kind of comparing them uh, on that end as well. Well, it looks like you're working on a lot of really interesting stuff. So I, uh, I hope that and I'm confident you're going to have a bunch more publications coming out here in the next few <laughs> years. So I'll uh, hopefully I can get you back on here and we can have some follow up conversations here.